time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's Friday, August 14th, 2009. Almost caught up with all my production work. (laughs) And the weekend's supposed to start. Hopefully you've had a productive work week and you are looking forward to the weekend ahead and enjoy a little bit of time off. And those of you moms out there, you need days off too. That's right. Dad can step in and help you out. Just want to let you know. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. I am the chief of sinners. That's right. I'm not here to uh, give advice on three easy steps to make you more holy and more uh, acceptable and to God. There's no such thing. There's nothing that you can do to make yourself acceptable to God. You are a wretched sinner, just like I am. And if it were not for Jesus Christ and his sacrifice uh, for our sins on the cross, neither you or I stand a snowball's chance in Hades of um, standing before God on our own righteousness. So give it up. Don't even try. That's not how you do it anyway. Yeah, that's right. In fact, uh, Christian sanctification flows from the fact that you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. You are ontologically different. Uh, A bad tree can't bear good fruit, and a good tree doesn't bear bad fruit. In other words, the call of the gospel is one to resurrection. That's right. The changing of a heart of stone. It's a heart transplant, a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. It's from being a dead tree to being a live tree, from being a bad tree to being a good tree, from being a goat to being a sheep. And uh, those types of things, you can't make the decision for that to happen. It happens to you through the work and power of God, the Holy Spirit, through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. That's right. Sins. What is a sin? That's when you outright disobey God and do the thing that you know you shouldn't do. And you're sitting there going, well, uh, what about, what if I didn't know? Yeah, actually, you do know because the Bible's clear. The law is written on your hearts. Um, So, therefore, um, you constantly sin against God. Walk through the Ten Commandments. You don't love God with all your heart. You don't love your neighbor as yourself. You lie. You cheat. You steal. You commit adultery. You covet. uh, You just go down the list. You cannot possibly have any hope of standing before God uh, in your own righteousness. So what does God do? He says, doesn't sit there and go, well, I hope they make it. I'm, my hands are tied. I don't, you know, I'll, I'll think good thoughts for them. No. In fact, the Bible is this amazing story of a God who steps into history. That's right. The incarnate God himself, Jesus Christ, come to earth in order to do a few things. One perfectly fulfilled the righteous demands of the law. That's right. He perfectly fulfilled them. He was without sin. And he dies on the cross in your place, punished in your place, pierced for your transgressions, bruised for your iniquities. That's right. He was literally propitiating the wrath of God and atoning for your sins. And here's the clarion call of the gospel. Repent and believe this good news. Change your mind regarding your self-righteousness and instead turn to the forgiveness of sins. Now, you can't do this on your own. It's impossible. But through the preaching of the gospel, God 
literally gives you the gift of repentance, the gift of faith, and when you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, Christ's perfect righteousness is given to you as if you're the one who lived it. I kid you not. God doesn't see you as the wretched sinner anymore. He sees you in Christ. He sees you clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ. Sound too good to be true? Well, this is one of those few times it isn't. That's actually how good the good news is. So now, with this completely radically changed being that you are, you are alive, you are buried in Christ, you are raised with Christ, your heart of stone has been replaced with the heart of flesh, you now love God. You can love God. You can serve your neighbor. In fact, that's what you do by nature. So the reason why you do good works is because how could you not do good works? That would be like saying cars don't drive. You know, well, what'd you get that car for? Well, just to have it sit in the garage and, you know, sit there and look good. Uh, you know, cars are made to be driven. Okay. So that's the thing. The reason why you sin is you're sinful by nature. The reason why you do good works as a Christian is because you have a new nature in Christ given to you. And you can't help but do good works. So if you're doing good works because you think that somehow through them you're earning brownie points or getting stars put on your star chart, uh, you know, you're holding a star chart, that's not how Christianity works at all. You are working off of a wage system. And uh, those wage systems, funny enough, they have a co- uh, ability to come back and bite you because if you think that's how God operates, you do good and he owes you a wage, you don't understand the Christian gospel. You don't understand what Christ has done for you. Repent and trust in the good news. All right, we've got an interesting program lined up today. Friday, it's Friday. Uh, we're going to do the Sexy Sermon Quiz. This is put out on a website called Stuff Christians Like. I'm going to read this to you. I find it interesting. We've got a, a, uh, another op-ed piece from the uh, from Dr. Uh, Robert Mueller uh, called the uh, polam- uh, Polyamory, the Perfectly Plural Postmodern Condition. Notice the alliteration there. Very clever, by the way. And then I'm going to continue. I, Johnny Mac, uh, I shouldn't call him that. That's really kind of rude, isn't it? John MacArthur. Uh, 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 John MacArthur has a new book out. and People we lovingly refer to him as Johnny Mac. I really don't mean him any any slight whatsoever. I'm not trying to snob him or anything like that. Um, he's got a new book out, and he's as, uh, as part of this uh, Christian Post has interviewed him, which I think is is his interview is worth reading kind of as uh, the groundwork for the question that I'm going to ask. And that is, um, how come every time Rob Bell opens his mouth about the cross, what comes out doesn't jive with scripture? Just a question I have. How come every time Rob Bell opens his mouth about the cross and what comes out of his mouth doesn't jive with scripture? Yeah, I'm going to give you an example of that today. We're going to be listening to a little bit of audio from uh, the book Sex God. <sighs> oh, man. Uh, you know, some, you, sometimes, you know, you just wonder, what has happened to Christianity? Why is it that we're in the state that we're in? Um, anyway, so I'm going to be reading to you, uh, listening, we're going to be listening to uh, Rob Bell from a portion of the book Sex God, where he talks about Jesus' death on the cross and his incarnation. And uh, we're going to ask the question, is this what Scripture teaches? We're going to compare what he says to the Word of God. 
And uh, and then for our sermon review today, um, let's see. Our, I think we're going to continue in the book of Acts. And then our sermon review today is um, from SOS Church there in uh, Spirit of St. Louis Church in St. Louis. And it's called uh, Survivor 300. Yeah, Survivor 300. And it has allusions to it of the uh, the movie 300 and, the, you know, the battle of the 300 there. And, uh, you know, it's... <sighs> yeah, it's going to be all kinds of fun. So make yourself comfortable. We've got plenty of ground to cover and plenty of time to do it in. It's going to be all kinds of fun. And uh, with that, we'll dive into our show proper today here. Uh, from the Stuff Christians Like uh, blog, uh, you can find this at stuffchristianslike.blogspot.com. It's their... Uh, Post number 588, they have a sexy sermon series uh, quiz. Now, John is the guy who, uh, who's one of the guys there at uh, Stuff Christians Like Blog, who is the blogger there. And, um, and so he has a question. Uh, basically, you have to ask, you ha- you ask the question, is this a real sex sermon series or something that John made up? And uh, so, you know, since this is his blog and his quiz, we'll go ahead and keep using uh, John's name it's a, as, a, as a means of giving him credit. Again, you can find this at stuffchristianslike.blogspot.com. Uh, here we go. This is a seven-question quiz, and I will give you the answers at the end of the quiz. So you might want to grab a pencil, some paper, and kind of jot this down, and uh, and so you've got to determine, is this the name of a real sex sermon series preached at a real, quote, Christian church, or is this something that John, the uh, blogger there at Stuff Christians Like, uh, made up? All right, here we go. Number one, the, sex, uh, the, uh, the name of the sermon series, uh, yourultimatelover.com. Is that a real sermon series, or is that something John made up? That's right, yourultimatelover.com. Think about it, write down your answer. Uh, number two, by the way, if you want, we you can cheat and look at your neighbor's quiz if you happen to be in close proximity to somebody else who's listening who wants to write these things down. Just want to let you know, you will not be docked points if I find you cheating and looking at your neighbor. We're okay with that here at Pirate Christian Radio. All right, next, uh, the number two, the name of it is Great Sex For You. Is that a real sermon series title or something that John, the blogger at Stuff Christians Like, made up? That's right, number two, sex, Great Sex For You. Okay, number three, Bringing Sexy Back. Is that a real uh, sermon series title or something that John made up? That's right, number three is Bringing Sexy Back. Number four, Electric Sex. Is that a real sex sermon series title or something that John the Blogger made up? Uh, number five, uh, What's Between the Sheets.com. That's right, What's Between the Sheets.com. Is that a real sex sermon series title or something that John the Blogger made up? Number six, DesperateSexLives.com. Is that a real sex sermon series title or something that John made up? The name again is DesperateSexLives.com. And uh, number seven, the final question on the quiz is, is this, (laughs) Solomon is the Old Testament's version of the musician Prince. Love notes from a man whose awesomeness with the ladies eventually brought him to ruin. (laughs) That's the name of the sermon. (laughs) Solomon is the Old Testament's version of the musician Prince. 
Love notes from a man whose awesomeness with the ladies eventually brought him to ruin. Is that the name of a real sex sermon series or something that John made up? All right, now uh, grab your uh, grab your answers, and uh, let's walk through these. Are you ready? The answer to uh, number one is that's a real sex sermon series. The answer to number two, yeah, that would be yourultimatelover.com. That's a real sex sermon series. Number two, great sex for you. That's a real sex sermon series. Number three, bringing sexy back. That's a real sex sermon series. Electric sex. Number four, that's real. Number five, what's between the sheets.com. That's real. Number six, desperate sex lives.com. That's real. And number seven, Solomon is the Old Testament's version of the musician Prince. Love notes from the man whose awesomeness with the ladies eventually brought him to ruin. That is also real. So if you answered uh, that every one of those was a real sermon, uh, real sex sermon series title, um, congratulations. You now have got seven points. That's right, seven uh, Fighting for the Faith quiz points that are perfectly useless and not redeemable anywhere. However, you could use those as bragging rights. Just want to let you know. Oh, man. What does that tell you about the church? What does that tell you about the Christian church? We've talked about it many times here at Fighting for the Faith, almost to the point where, for lack of a better way of putting it, claiming that these sex sermon series are relevant, it's no longer relevant. They've they've uh, they've just made the topic of sex completely unrelevant in the church. Why do I say that? Well, because here's the deal: is uh, yesterday's exciting and pardon the word, but the, it's the right word. Um, the intitulating uh, sex sermon series um, is um, it's got to be outdone next year in order for it to be relevant. Otherwise, everyone's going to go, "Oh yeah, that was so 2007." Yeah, who? Yeah, why do we want to be doing these sermon series that we were doing back in 2007? Don't you understand? It's it's like the end of 2009. We're getting ready for, like, you know, 2010. I mean, who wants to be stuck, you know, back in 2007? You, you see what I'm saying? So whatever it is that you're using to, um, you know, to bring them in yesterday, you've got to ramp it up next year. And uh, uh, I apologize for saying this. But, I mean, it, there's only one direction that this is eventually going to be heading to, okay? And that is um, full-blown uh, visual e- explanations uh, regarding techniques in the bedroom being done uh, in on a Christian stage. I mean, that's where I think this is all heading. I know that sounds crazy, and you're thinking, what? Oh, yeah, I think that's where we're heading. You know, we're just a step or two away from that. I mean, the anyway, sorry. Okay, uh, now this next. Uh, in fact, we gotta re- pull out our vintage news music here from the Christian Post. The headline reads: uh, "Polyamory: The Perfectly Plural Postmodern Condition." An op-ed piece by uh, Dr. Albert Muller. Uh, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, not too far from Indianapolis, Indiana, actually. You know, just look it up on a map. Anyway, um, here's the deal. I mean, we all are very well aware of the current battle regarding, regarding homosexual marriage. And it's not just this argument with the, quote, culture, because 
Uh, now there's a whole group of people like the emergent church and liberals who are basically making the claim that uh, we need to celebrate uh, God's gift of homosexuality. And uh, and so the way they're celebrating it is is that they are putting openly homosexual men and women into the pulpit in Christian churches. Okay. Uh, where is all this heading? Well, how long before we have the emergent guys um, basically arguing, well, if we, can, if we can have homosexuals in the pulpit, you know, as long as they're in a committed relationship, why can't we have people who are in polyamorous relationships? Hmm. Or polygamy. I mean, David was a polygamist. Solomon was a polygamist. I mean, they obviously had good relationships with God. I mean, David was a man after God's own heart. Uh, who are we to say, to judge that a person cannot be in a pulpit ministry if they are in a committed uh, polyamorous or polygamous relationship with a few people? <clears throat> it sounds like the argument, uh, the slippery slope argument. The reality, though, is this, <laughs> um, this is no longer a slippery slope argument. This is a real, uh, real argument in some quarters. Uh, we, we read uh, Dr. Moeller. Once a sexual revolution is set loose, it inevitably runs its course through the culture. While the current flashpoints of cultural conflict are focused on same-sex marriage and gender issues, others are biding their time. As Newsweek magazine makes clear... Some new flashpoints are getting restless. <laughs> so this isn't Roseboro pontificating. This isn't Al Mohler basically giving us a worst case slippery slope argument. This isn't James Dobson out there in uh, in Colorado Springs bemoaning you know the future direction of the culture and people saying no that can't possibly be. This is Newsweek talking about it. Polyamory reports Newsweek is having a, quote, coming out party. Polyamory is the current term of art applied to families or clusters comprised of multiple sex partners. As Newsweek explains, this is not exactly polygamy because marriage is not the issue. Advocates of polyamory argue that their lifestyle is not open marriage. Indeed, they define their movement in terms of the moral principle of ethical non-monogamy. Let's just stick two words together that just don't go. Let me see if I have this straight. They, they, the term that the polyamorous people have coined is ethical non-monogamy. And you're sitting there going, wait a second. Isn't non-monogamy by definition not ethical? Ah, only if you think that the Bible is to be taken literally on such things. <clears throat> Defined as engaging in loving, intimate relationships with more than one person based upon the knowledge and consent of everyone involved. You know, just thinking about this, can you imagine? I mean, this would completely do away with adultery. Honey, listen, hey, I want to introduce you to my girlfriend. Now, I understand we've been married for many years now and, you know, I, but I, I just in, I just want to let you know that I, I've begun a polyamorous relationship with Becky over there. And, you know, it's Becky, say hi to my wife. Hey, how's it going? That was so nice to meet you. Oh, it's wonderful that you two are dating. Isn't that great? A anyway, 
just anyway, <clears throat> we continue with Al Mohler's piece. Legal theorists and opponents of same-sex marriage routinely and rightly make the argument that the legalization of homosexual marriage will inevitably lead to the legalization of polygamy. Once marriage is redefined to allow for same-sex unions, any determination to maintain legal prohibitions against polygamy will be seen as merely arbitrary. Too true. At the same time, one strictures against adultery were eliminated in the culture and in the wall, something essentially like, polyg essentially like polygamy was inevitable. The article in Newsweek written by Jessica Bennett presents polyamory as a growing movement that now involves persons in the cultural mainstream. As the magazine reports, researchers are just beginning to study the phenomenon, but the few who do estimate that openly polyamorous families in the United States number more than a half a million with thriving contingents in nearly a every major city. So here in the United States, there's already a half a million uh, polyamorous people out there. You know, it's just a matter of time before we start getting scientific studies that say that certain people are genetically wired towards polyamorous relationships. Yeah, I'm just telling you. And so people are going to say, hey, listen, are you heterosexual, or homosexual, or polyamorous by, uh, you know, by nature? No, I'm just saying this is what's coming. <clears throat> the movement now claims a number of recognized books, logs, podcasts, and even an online magazine entitled Loving More. <laughs> See, we're not sinners. We're just loving more. According to Newsweek, actress Tilda Swinton and Carla Bruni, the First Lady of France, have emerged as prominent spokesperson, sp spokespersons for non-monogamy. As should be expected, the Kinsey Institute for Research in Sex, Gender, and Reproduction at Indiana University now features a polyamory library. Jessica Benick suggests that the contemporary polyamory movement has roots in utopian movements of the 19th century. The notion of multiple partner relationship, relationships is as old as the human race itself, but polyg uh, poly uh, polyamorists trace the foundation of their movement to the utopian Unita Com uh, Commune of upstate New York founded in 1848 by Yale theologian... Hang on a second here... <clears throat> Just choking on the word theologian there. It's stuck like in the back of my throat like a chicken bone. Hang on a second. <clears throat> Yale <clears throat> theologian John Humphrey Noyes. Noyes believed in a kind of communalism he hoped would fix relations between men and women. Both genders had equal voice in community governance. And every man was considered to be married to every woman. Oh, boy. But it wasn't until the late 1960s and 1970s free love movement that polyamory truly came into vogue when books like Open Marriage topped bestseller lists and groups like the North American Swingers Club began experimenting with the concept. The term polyamory coined in the 1990s popped up in both the Merriam-Webster's and Oxford English Dictionaries in 2006. In one sense, the polyamorous defy easy categorization, <clears throat> choking on the word categorization. The movement includes couples who openly and with full knowledge of each other engage in sexual relations with others. Some are involved in group sex and others ex experimented with bisexuality. 
The Newsweek article introduces readers to a new vocabulary. The most revealing word is polyfidelitous. Polyfidelitous? Which means that multiple partners keep sexual activity within their own self-identified cluster. In other words, they're faithful to the group. Oh, boy. <laughs> I, I'm just telling you, it's just a matter of time before we have emergent cohorts that are dedicated to this stuff. I'm telling you. Interestingly, Bennett observes that the movement has a decidedly feminist bent. If men can have multiple wives or female partners, then the logic goes women must have the same in order to achieve gender equality. Bennett quotes Alina Gabosh, director of an organization known as the Center for Sex Positive Culture. Can you imagine that? That is your day job. Anyway, suggesting that polyamory sounds scary to people because it shakes up their worldview. But she insists polyamory might well be more than natural than we think. Perhaps the best way to understand this new movement is to understand it as a natural consequence of subverting marriage. That's a good way to think about it. It's a completely natural consequence of subverting marriage. Mm-hmm, exactly. You're subverting the institution that God created and how he created it. How how wonderfully candid of you to say that. We have largely normalized adultery, serialized marriage, separated marriage from reproduction and childbearing, and accepted divorce as a mechanism for liberation. Once this happens, boundary after boundary falls as sexual regulation virtually disappears among those defined as consenting adults. The ultimate sign of our moral confusion becomes evident when virtually no one appears ready to condemn polyamory as immoral. The only arguments mustered against this new movement focus on matters of practicality. Polyamory is certainly not new, but this new movement is yet another reminder that virtually all the fences are now down when it comes to sex and sexual relationship. What comes next? Well, Dr. Muller, the answer to the question is pretty simple. Uh, polyamorous clergy. I'm just telling you. Anyway, this, I mean, if this, if this really takes off, I mean, it might be dangerous going to an emergent small group study. Just saying. Oh, boy. Anyway, all right, we're up on our first break. When we come back, we're going to uh, read portions of John MacArthur's interview with the Christian Post. And uh, good stuff here. And then that we'll use that to segue into answering the question I have. How come every time Rob Bell opens his mouth about the cross, what comes out doesn't jive with Scripture? Yeah, we're going to answer that question today. So stay tuned. Lots of good stuff coming up. Now, if you'd like to email me, you can. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Uh, that's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can look me up on Facebook and follow me there. Or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Hey, do you want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst. Holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm. You're going to be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. <laughs> You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And be like, no. And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You have so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power spawning, Chester. You have so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies and they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gamble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you uh, holy. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. Love my bumper music. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Warning this program could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. So I'm, I'm telling you, you know, and it seems like counterintuitive marketing. You know, what, why are you saying that, Rosebro? Why? Because I think it's a fair warning. I've received many an email from people who've, uh, who found themselves in a position of no longer being able to stay in the church that they're at because their pastor isn't teaching Christianity. They're off on some, in, in la-la land. When you start getting biblical discernment, when you start learning how to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, um, it can create some major problems in your life, and I think that's only fair to warn you about that. It, so, <clears throat> anyway, it, by the way, I'm not exempt from this little exercise. I do not claim to be the ogre of all knowledge and wisdom when it comes to the Bible. Hardly. I'm a Bible student, much the same as anyone else. 
And, you know, the, the difference is, is that I probably have a few more years on it than you do and have read a lot more books on it. Okay? That's – but the reality is, is that the, I read the same Bible you read. Okay? You, you think about it. This is a good metaphor. I'm a golfer, right? I know you – well, it all depends on how you define golfer. I'm not a good golfer. I'm not a great golfer. I'm an average golfer. You know, I shoot in the you know mid to lower 80s. You know, that's when everything's clicking. And uh, that being the case, okay, when I go out onto a golf course, do, 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 you know, do I have any fewer clubs in my bag than Tiger Woods have? I think about it. Tiger Woods, the number one golfer in the world, right? Number one in the world. He, he, he has the exact same amount of golf clubs in his golf bag as I carry. I mean, you would think this because he has that ginormous golf bag that uh, Stevie has to carry, you know, schlep all over these golf courses around the world that, you know, he has he has more in his arsenal than uh, I do. Uh-uh. No, he doesn't. He has the exact same 14 clubs in his bag that I have in my bag. I kid you not. I mean, there the, the, the different the, the real big difference is the name brand. That's it. Okay, so you're thinking, well, he's got the same amount of clubs that Roseboro has, so what's the difference? He's been playing a lot longer than I have, uh, and he he knows how to do things with those golf clubs I just do not know how to do. Plus, have you seen the way he, that guy looks? I mean, he looks like he works out. Um, I look like I sit down. I'm just saying. So anyway, so the, 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 here's the deal. I read the same Bible you read. Doesn't you know? I'm telling you, unless you're reading something from outer space like the message, we're reading the same Bible. And what I'm pointing you to is the same stuff that's in my Bible that's in your Bible. Maybe stuff that you may not be familiar with. Maybe you just haven't studied as long as I have. But I have no special um, you know, divine uh, hookup with God up in heaven. It's not like he's got, I've got you know a thing on my desk you know with the heaven button on it and I talk to God. No, not at all. The reality is God's talked to us and all this stuff was recorded in pretty simple to understand language. I mean, Hebrew is a wonderfully easy language as far as the way it works. I mean, it works in word pictures. It's it's fantastic. It's a very action-oriented language. And Greek, Koine Greek, Koine Greek, that's, uh, that's really simple Greek. It's not as difficult as classical. It's not that hard of a language to learn. And so you know, what I'm basically saying is is that, yeah, I, I've studied these things, but again, I'm human. I'm capable of error. That means you compare what I say to the word of God yourself. By the way, I got an email from a gentleman. He said basically, oh, Chris, I love your show. I just can't understand why, you, you know, I, I just don't agree with you on the baptism thing. Hey, listen, guy, I know exactly what you're talking about there. I mean, Baptism was one of these things that I, oh man, I did not want to change what I believed on baptism. I was forced to. I was literally forced to by the word of God. So I, I understand where, you're, where your thinking is on this, but uh, I would challenge you, dig back into the Bible on the issue of baptism and what the Bible teaches on it. I kid you not, if you start getting serious with those texts, you're going to find yourself going, man, I got to change what I believe about this. Why? Because the passages are so clear. 
Anyway, I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means your financial support is vital for us to continue, continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as others. In fact, by supporting Fighting for the Faith, you make it possible for this program to reach other people with this message of discernment and with the incessant focus that I keep bringing this program to on the gospel of Jesus Christ and the good news of the forgiveness of sins for you, you Christians out there who've been Christians all your life, you need to hear this gospel message too. Why? Because you're a sinner like me. That's right. You sin today and you need to hear about Christ's mercy and grace. Otherwise, you run the risk of uh, beginning to trust in your own sanctification as uh, the proof of your salvation. And at that point, uh, you got the emphasis on the wrong syllable and you might end up in complete despair or a turn into a Pharisee and think that you're uh, somehow righteous when you're not. Anyway, uh, so by supporting Fighting for the Faith, you make it possible for this program to be shared with other people and we're listened to around the world. You can support us a couple of ways. Number one, visit the Fighting for the Faith website. That is www.fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you can peruse our archives if you like. And uh, fightingforthefaith.com, click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. Real simple. You can uh, you can donate there online, instantly, securely, and all those other adverbs. Or if you could do if you'd like to do it the traditional way, absolutely acceptable. You can do so by uh, making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box five zero eight, Fishers, Indiana, zip code four six zero. All right, this is a little bit of prelude for the next segment. So this one's going to, I'm going to read a little bit of uh, John MacArthur's, uh, yeah, I did not mean any, any disrespect by calling him Johnny Mac, so don't send me emails on (laughs) Anyway, there are people who call him that. Anyway, and it's it's a term of endearment. Anyway, um, and it's on uh, the uh, the Jesus you can't ignore, and that's kind of going to lay a little bit of groundwork for the question: How come every time Rob Bell opens his mouth about the cross, what comes out doesn't jive with Scripture? I'm going to have you listen to Rob Bell from a section of his book called "Sex God," <sighs> and uh, specifically about the incarnation and Christ's death on the cross, and see if uh, what he says about Jesus's death on the cross. And what it means makes any sense to you at all. I mean, at least comparing it to the Bible. John MacArthur, uh, uh, he has upcoming book called The Jesus You Can't Ignore, and he recently was interviewed by Lillian Kwan of the uh, Christian Post. And uh, one of the questions she had for him is, what kind of Jesus did you grow up on? Was, was your first impression of Jesus this bold, aggressive Jesus? Interesting question. MacArthur answered, well, I was raised in a pastor's family, and my dad was a preacher of Scripture, so I grew up on the scriptural Jesus. (laughs) Great answer. Obviously, like so many kids, when you're a child, the features of Jesus that are more attractive to children are emphasized. But it didn't take long for me to hear my father preach about the Jesus who cleansed the temple, the Jesus who pronounced judgment on false religion, the Jesus who denounced the religious leaders of Israel— so I think I grew up with a pretty balanced view of Jesus, but it's right to assume that when you're a young child in Sunday school, you get the Jesus who tends to be the one who loves and cares for the children and heals the sick and feeds the hungry. I would even throw into that one the Jesus who has the fuzzy, warm little lamb on his back. <clears throat> Next question. Uh, you've probably come across books reporting that uh, people like Jesus but not the church. What kind of Jesus do you think they like? 
Would people like this Jesus that you emphasize in your book? Now, listen to that question again. Would people like this Jesus that you emphasize in your book? He's just made it clear that the Jesus he believes in is the one in Scripture. And his description of the Jesus of Scripture that he's describing includes all those thorny and vexing things uh, about Jesus that may be de-emphasized by people who are more politically correct. So listen to his, his answer. Probably not, but most of those these people are content to invent Jesus, to construct Jesus in a way that suits their comfort zone. It's as if you said, which Winston Churchill do you believe in? Well, there's only one Winston Churchill. He was who he was. That's the one, that, that's the one there is. You don't get to create your own. The same is true for Jesus. He's a historical figure. He he is who he is. But I think rather than go to the Bible and get the full picture of who Jesus is, people are very content with a sort of benign, self-satisfying view of Jesus. Next question. You mentioned in your book that the evangelicals are pretty much approaching postmodernism the wrong way. They're being a lot less aggressive, less preachy, and more focused on engaging in conversations. Why do you think so many evangelicals have become such softies, if you will? MacArthur answers, I think there are a number of reasons. First of all, we live in a postmodern climate, and my ideas have consequences, and they penetrate culture. So you got this sort of postmodern idea that you got your truth and I got my truth, and that has found its way into the church, in the emerging church. And along with that, the emergent movement features the idea that the Bible's not clear. It's an old document. They came up with that in order to separate themselves from the responsibility to obey what I think is clear in Scripture. So you have the postmodern, and then you have the market-conscious church, the church that thinks the gospel is a product. Jesus is a product. We have to sell. And in order to sell him effectively, we have to overcome consumer resistance. And the way to overcome, overcome consumer resistance is to simply figure out a message that the consumer won't resist. So you invent the Jesus that people will like, and you invent the gospel that people will like. And when you have another component, and that is an age in which tolerance seems to dominate, and you know the sort of Rodney King theology, can't we all just get along? You have to be tolerant of this, tolerant uh, of that. Tolerance, Intolerance is basically the only virtue left in much of our culture. All of these things mingle together with one of uh, one other very important thing, confronting people like Jesus did, confronting people in false religion, confronting people in error, confronting people's sins, warning them about hell, calling them to repentance, calling them to escape false religion is a very difficult thing to do. And there's a natural tendency on the part of people to be reluctant to do that because it has negative consequences. And if you feed the poor, nobody's going to make you a martyr. And if you proclaim the social gospel, you'll be a hero on every front. Preach the truth. Call false religion a lie. Tell sinners they need to repent of their sin and escape hell by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other way, and you're going to generate hostility. People get martyred all the time, even today in Afghanistan and, and Sudan and Iran and Iraq and a lot of other places for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think it's tough to do that. So I think all these things kind of blend together to sort of suck the life and boldness out of the church. We're just content to be nice people. Hey, maybe God's going to let them into heaven if they do the best that they can. I guess you can call it 
legalism light. It's not the heavy legalism of the Pharisees, but it's legalism light. If you're a good person, you'll kind of make your way in. It all comes back to the fact that we're letting the culture determine the message for us. We're letting expectation, fear of man, rather than Scripture determine our message, and rather than following Jesus in the way he presented the message, on the one hand, compassionate with those who are willing to repent, tender towards those in need, and on the other hand, very antagonistic, literally infuriating the purveyors of false religion until they killed him. Absolutely. I think MacArthur's got some great points here worth passing along. That's why I read that. All right. Now the question before us, the question that I hope to answer here is uh, the question of, and I wrote this down. Let me get my program notes here. How come every time Rob Bell opens his mouth about the cross, what comes out doesn't jive with Scripture? I I consider that to be a... uh, let's just say, a very valid question to be asking uh, in light of what we just heard um, uh, John MacArthur say in his interview with the Christian Post. So um, here's Rob Bell from his book, I hate this name, Sex God, and this is from Chapter 6, and uh, the question before us is, well, he's going to talk about, uh, well, the incarnation and Jesus' death on the cross. I will interrupt as necessary to ask questions and respond the way I do. So here we go. Here's um, Rob Bell, uh, the head pastor there, the head teaching pastor there at Mars Hill Bible Church, uber guru of the NUMA videos, um, really, really the rock star of, of the emergent church movement. And, and listen to what he says about Jesus' incarnation and his death on the cross. And see if, what in order to discern this correctly, you have to ask yourself this question. What's missing? What he says may or may not necessarily be true, but there's something seriously missing. See if you can figure it out. Here we go. Chip. So if you were God, which I realize is an odd way to begin a sentence, but if you were God, the all-powerful creator of the universe, and you wanted to move toward people, you wanted to express your love for the world in a new way, how would you do it? If you showed up in your power and control and might, you would scare people off. This is what happens at the giving of the Ten Commandments. The first two commandments are in the first person. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image, for I, the Lord. But starting with the third commandment, someone else is talking. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord, your God, for the Lord. The rabbis believed that this is because God was speaking directly to the people in the first two commands, but they couldn't handle it. As it says in the text, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. So the rabbis reasoned, the switch in person is because Moses gave them the remaining eight commandments. Just God speaking is too much to bear. If you're God and you want to express ultimate love to your creation, if you want to move toward them in a definitive way, you have a problem because just showing up overwhelms people. You wouldn't come as you are. You wouldn't come in strength. You wouldn't come in your pure, raw essence. You'd scare everybody away. The last thing people would perceive is love. So how would you express your love in an ultimate way? How do you connect with people in a manner that wouldn't scare them off but would compel them to want to come closer, to draw near. Okay, so the reason why Jesus Christ comes to earth, why God is incarnate in Jesus Christ, 
um, oh, I, I, that sentence is wrong. The reason why God is in, has incarnated and we see God in human flesh and his name is Jesus Christ, he shows up this way because he loves us and he doesn't want to scare us off. So this is this is his way of making it so that we'd be interested in him and come near him. Oh boy. Here. You would need to strip yourself of all the trappings that come with ultimate power and authority. That's how love works. It doesn't matter if a man has a million dollars and wants to woo a woman. If she loves him for his money, it isn't really love. If you were an almighty being who made the universe and everything in it, you would need to meet people on their level, in their world, on their soil, like them. This is the story of the Bible. This is the story of Jesus. Consider the story just for the sheer poetry of it. Jesus is born to teenage peasants under questionable circumstances. His mother gets pregnant before marriage. He's born amid the dung and straw of a stable. He's placed in a feeding trough. His brothers and sisters think he's out of his mind. And after his first sermon in his hometown, the people he grew up with form a mob and try to kill him. And who does Jesus identify with? The outcasts, the people of the land who aren't good enough, clean enough, wealthy enough, and pure enough to be part of the establishment. He's invited to... Okay, listen carefully. This is where this is, this is, there's this little thing going on here. He's dealing in the categories of power and wealth and authority and status. Okay. That's the categories he's dealing with. Notice, okay, I'm going to basically tell you right up front, these are not your normal theological categories. These are, however, categories of liberation theology, a theology that is heavily influenced by Marxism. Okay? And Marx is, uh, owes Hegel a lot of um, a lot there for his thinking. But listen carefully and see if you can, again, ask, ask, ask the question, what's missing from this? Because that's, that's even more important than what you're going to hear. But we continue. Listen carefully. I did to dine with the elite and the rich, which he does numerous times, but he also eats with the lowest of the low, and he enjoys it. He enjoys them. He touches people with infectious skin diseases. He lets questionable women touch him. He lays his hands on dead bodies. He engages in conversation with promiscuous women alone in the middle of the day. His entire life is about the stripping away of power and control. Jesus. Whoa, 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 whoa. Did you hear that? Jesus' Jesus' entire life is about stripping away power and control? Really? That's an odd interpretation, one that's not found in the epistles. You don't have any of the apostles writing in their letters about Jesus stripping away power and control. That is a foreign interpretation that is not indigenous to Scripture. I'm pointing it out to you because it doesn't belong Jesus' life was not about stripping away power and control. Notice that the categories missing are sin and atonement, sin and God's wrath, sin and propitiation, 
sin and God's mercy and grace, sin and repentance and the forgiveness of sins. That's, that's completely gone. It's not in here. It wasn't in his other gospel gospel presentation either, but listen carefully here. We continue. Jesus always chooses the path of love, not power, inclusion, not exclusion, connection and solidarity rather than rank and hierarchy, touch rather than distance, compassion rather than control. He comes on a donkey, not a horse, weeping and broken, not proud and triumphant. This path Jesus has chosen, which he continues to choose day after day, takes on some ominous undertones. He finds himself at odds with those in power. He finds himself at odds with those in power. He finds himself at odds with people who are trying to justify themselves and are self-righteous, and they happen to be in power. But is it really about power per se? Partway through the Gospels, the accounts of his life, he starts dropping hints that the path he's on is going somewhere, somewhere that involves suffering and even death. His hints, which start turning into predictions, are about a conflict that he sees as inevitable, a conflict between love and controlling power. So it's the conflict that Jesus have between love and, quote, controlling power. The reason I'm asking the question again is because this is a completely foreign interpretation. He's overlaying a very modern Hegelian Marxist liberation theology set of categories on the scriptures. Yet, nowhere in the, in the writings of the apostles do we have this interpretation. Again, he's dealing in power and wealth and authority, and, and we continue. Pulling power. As we read the Gospels, we find Jesus' message putting him more and more in conflict with the religious and political leaders of his day. He's threatening their power. This is what love does. It threatens the empires of power and control and wealth and manipulation. Stop. Love threatens the empires. Listen to this, listen to this thinking. Love threatens the empires of wealth and power and authority. So Jesus comes to bust empires? Is that what he's about? That's why he came? Hmm. He's eventually arrested and put on a sort of trial at which he's asked to perform miracles. He refuses, knowing that a display of his miraculous abilities would not be true to the path he's on. He's eventually beaten and flogged, and when he doesn't fight back, he's mocked. He doesn't say anything in return. He's hung on a cross and says, I am thirsty, naked, bleeding, vulnerable. Okay, now listen carefully. Now here comes a metaphorical, allegorical, I'm sorry, allegorical interpretation of Jesus' thirst and nakedness and bleeding. Here we go. Listen to the allegory here. Here we go. Vulnerable. Thirsty. He even quotes a well-known prayer of the day, which includes the haunting line, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was explained this way in a popular first century hymn recorded in the book of Philippians. Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God. We're not quite to the allegory yet. Hold on another moment. He's with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. 
This is not weakness as we think of weakness. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. There is a weakness that is truly weakness, that has nothing else to it. No depth, no intention, no greater purpose. But Jesus is intentional in what he's doing. His vulnerability is for a purpose. There is a weakness. So Jesus is being vulnerable for a purpose. What's the purpose? Is it to propitiate God's wrath and atone for our sins? A weakness that is actually strength. And there is a strength that is actually weakness. Take, for example, a parent who yells at their children and holds them accountable for all sorts of random tasks they were supposed to have known to do and who allows their mood to dictate the mood of the whole house. This kind of parent dominates their family with manipulative behavior and petty punishments that create chaos and insecurity for those around them. This kind of parent is using their strength, but they are actually weak. They do this because, in truth, They're broken, confused, and insecure. They have no idea what they're doing as a parent or as a person. The same is true for managers and bosses and teachers and anyone who uses their position of authority to coerce and bully others. They can get people to do what they want, but it's only because of the position they hold. Their authority is rooted in nothing larger or stronger or higher than their rank. And that can be taken away tomorrow. They may appear strong, but they are actually weak. Contrast this with people who appear weak, but are actually quite strong. It's when someone says something mean or cutting about us, and everything within us wants to one-up them with an even nastier comment in return, thus winning the exchange, but we hold our tongue. We lose the round. But what we did took tremendous strength, and it would take even more strength to forgive them and then maybe even love them. It would all appear quite weak to the observer unless they understood that what they were witnessing was actually strength in action. It takes quite a spine to turn the other cheek. It takes phenomenal fortitude to love your enemy. It takes firm resolve to pray for those who persecute you. This isn't just true on an individual relational level. It's true for families and people groups and even nations. Consider Gandhi, who was famous for his commitment to nonviolence. Think about what he accomplished. A short, bald man from India, wearing a white robe and spectacles, stood up to the British Empire and won without a gun. Notice he's comparing Jesus to Gandhi. Listen carefully. We're going to get to that allegory here in a second. This appeared at the time to be incredibly weak, but history teaches us in this and many other cases that there is a better way. It's a way that may appear weak, but it is actually strong. Take, for example, the Roman soldiers who flogged, mocked, beat, and then nailed Jesus to the execution stake. Soldiers in the army earning a decent wage, spending another day at work in the far reaches of the empire. Uh, Agents of the empire. So Jesus is there. The reason he's dying on the cross is to resist the empire. The empire taking care of another Jew who has caused some sort of ruckus about rules and rituals and religion that makes very little sense to a sophisticated Roman. These soldiers exercise power over Jesus in killing him, but it's hollow and ungrounded strength. They are serving no greater cause than their masters conquering more lands and building larger armies and gaining more power and wealth. 
The whips and hammers and nails and stakes are in the service of no greater ideal than simple human greed. It is, in the end, pointless. Jesus is calling all of this into question. So Jesus is calling the empire into question. He is a Gandhi. He sees it for the lie that it is and is willing to go the whole way to resist it, including his own death. So Jesus sees the empire as a lie and willing to go the whole way to resist it. That's why he's on the cross, because he's willing to go the whole way to resist the empire. Notice what's missing here? Death. He is confronting an entire system of rank and exclusion in hierarchy that says some people are better than others and some people are worth more than others. So he's confronting a hierarchy of rank and... Uh-huh. ...more than others. And some are good enough for God and some aren't. And some should triumph while others suffer at their expense. Now, stop. I want to point something out here. There is a large, not a small, a large nugget of truth in what he's talking about. Let me explain it to you. You don't have to completely throw, you don't have to throw the whole baby out with the bathwater. Jesus is definitely confronting those things that he's describing. The thing is, is that what, what Rob Bell is describing here are symptoms. They're symptoms of a greater problem and that greater problem is that we are all by nature sinful and at war with god by nature and our rebellion against god our sinful and wicked nature manifests itself in many and varied ways including the things that he's described, people who use wealth and status to suppress and oppress and enslave other people, expansive empires that are militaristic and and basically stick their boot on the neck of the people that they've conquered, and there's nothing more to it than greed and ambition. and Absolutely, all of that's true. The problem is is that that's... All, those are all symptoms. Jesus wasn't going for the symptoms. He was aiming at the root. So, in a sense, Rob Bell is right, but because he's only described, he's, he's, he, Jesus' mission is now being described in light of attacking symptoms, he's wrong because he's not seeing the real depth of the, of the gospel here. Because what's the thing that's missing? Propitiation, penal substitution, God's wrath, God's judgment, hell, the forgiveness of sins, repentance, uh, you know, all of that is missing from this new, it's a a sanitized, socialized, uh, put into Marxist, uh, leftist theology type uh, stuff, gospel. But it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ that he's describing Because he's only attacking symptoms, he's missing the whole point of what Christ was doing. We continue. Listen carefully. Expense. In Jesus' public exposure, he exposes the lie of the empire. Now, this is the allegory. So in Jesus' public exposure, his nakedness, he exposes the lie of the empire. No, that's not what the Bible says at all. That is an allegorical interpretation, and it doesn't follow from what you're saying. We continue. Here's more allegory. Of the empire. 
In Jesus' vulnerability, he shows how vulnerable the strength of power and corruption really are. Uh, no, that again is a completely allegorical interpretation in, in Marxist categories of all things. Um, no, that's, that, that is not a valid interpretation of, of Jesus' quote vulnerability. Corruption really are. In Jesus' thirst, he shows us how greed will always leave us thirsting for more. No, again, allegorical interpretation. Thirsting for more. In Jesus' emptiness, he shows us how empty the way of the world really is. No, again, allegorical interpretation, again. Really is. It's all upside down, an obscure Jewish rabbi challenging a world-dominating regime. And yet several days later, rumors spread that he's risen. Jesus was not challenging a world-dominating regime. He was defeating sin, death, and the devil. The Roman Empire was the least of his worries and was not even an enemy worth fighting. By the way, it was the Jews who put him on the cross, not the... Anyway. ...from the dead. Perhaps this is why one of the soldiers at his execution starts to believe. He sees the two paths laid out before him, and in the midst of the blood and tears and suffering, he gets a glimpse of a better way. No, 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 no. Way. If there is a God who loves us and has acted in history to express that love, what would it look like? So there's a God who loves us and has acted in, in history as a means of expressing that love for us. Again, notice he's talking about the very center of the gospel itself, Christ crucified. And what's missing? Look like that is what I mean by the sheer poetry of the Jesus story. Jesus is God coming to us in love, sheer, unadulterated, unfiltered love, stripped of everything that could get in the way, naked and vulnerable, hanging on a cross, asking the question, what will you do with me? No, when Jesus was naked, bleeding, and dying on the cross, he wasn't asking questions. He said, it is finished. He wasn't saying, here I am. What are you going to do with me? I'm vulnerable and naked and bleeding and thirsty. See, I've resisted the empire and shown you a better way. No. He said, it is finished. Jesus wasn't, he was up to something. And that was dying for the sins of the world. Unbelievable. This is why for thousands of years, Christians have found the cross to be so central to life. It speaks to us of God's suffering, God's pain, God's broken heart. Listen it's, carefully. It's God making the first move and then waiting for our response. So the cross is God making the first move and then waiting for us to respond. See, I showed you how to resist the empire and power and wealth and status and authority. And what are you going to do with me naked and vulnerable and bleeding? If you've ever given yourself to someone and had your heart broken, you know how God feels. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. <sighs> if you've ever given yourself to someone and found yourself waiting for their response, exposed and vulnerable, left hanging in the balance, you know how God feels. If you've ever given yourself to someone and they responded, they reciprocated with love of their own, you know how God feels. The cross is God's way of saying, I know what it's like. So there you go. <laughs> 
what's the cross? Well, the, the cross is God's way of saying, hey, I, you know, I, I know what that feels like, man. Shoot. I can relate. Huh. What it's like. The execution stake is the creator of the universe saying, I know how you feel. Really? So the execution stake is the God of the universe saying, hey, I know how you feel, man. Been there. Yeah, I, I completely. Our tendency in the midst of suffering is to turn on God, to get angry and bitter and shake our fist at the sky and say, God, you don't know what it's like. You don't understand. You have no idea what I'm going through. You don't have a clue how much this hurts. The cross is God's way of taking away all our accusations, excuses, and arguments. The cross is God. Notice the cross doesn't take away our sin. It takes away our excuses and arguments. And listen. The cross is God taking on flesh and blood and saying, me too. There you have it. A completely, yet another, that's uh, uh, yet another uh, example of a completely gospelless gospel presentation from Rob Bell. That's Jesus hanging dead and naked on the cross is God taking, man, you know, I, I, this, I can t completely know how you feel, man. Yeah, and see, I, I, I had, to, I had to show that empire. Yeah, I showed that empire. I sure showed those Romans. Yep, I. That's right. Huh. I mean, this is this doesn't even qualify as Christus Victor. This is Christus Wimpy. Oh man, Christus Gandhi. There we go. The Christus Gandhi uh, explanation of the atonement unbelievable so i asked the question why is it that every time uh, rob bell opens his mouth about the uh, cross what comes out doesn't jive with scripture well i think there's uh, some pretty good answers to that i'm questioning as to whether or not this guy even knows what the christian gospel is and yet he is one of the most popular christian authors on the market today we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard, today's program or any previous ones, you can. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. Whew, we'll be right back. i got to go find a way to let the empire have it in the nose, man. I'm going I'm to stick it to the man, you know, by, you know, resisting him passively, man. Stick it to him. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Avaster, it be too late to alter course, mateys. And there be plundering pirates lurking in every cove, waiting to board. Sit closer together and keep your ruddy hands inboard. That be the best way to repel boarders. And mark well me words, mateys. Dead men tell no tales. <laughs> Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. 
However, a creeping fog known as the Emergent Church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the Emergent Heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. started hour number two went a little long there now we've been working our way through the uh, book of acts showing that the way the church grew was by the apostles literally obeying the way jesus taught them how to expand the church and that's to go out and boldly proclaim the gospel and call people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And what we find is is that uh, nowhere in the Scriptures do we find the apostles toning down the message, trying to make it culturally relevant or any of that nonsense. Instead, they boldly proclaim themselves as eyewitnesses to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh, the promised Messiah of Israel, and they declare to people forgiveness of sins and call them to repentance. Yeah, it's true. So uh, we're going to continue working through the book of Acts as we have been, and then from there we're going to do our sermon review, and uh, our sermon review is, oh man, it's from a uh, uh, soschurch.com, uh, and it's called Survivor 300. Yeah, I, I wish I could make... You can't make these things up anymore. And uh, it's definitely a, an exercise in confusion at best, and so you know that, that'll be our sermon review for today. But let me uh, continue in the book of Acts. We're at to Acts 25, and I'm going to read 25 and 26 because they're that good. Jesus, by uh, I mean, Paul here... Is uh, you know he's already been arrested and they're trying to figure out what to do with him. It says now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense neither against the law of the jews nor against the temple nor against caesar have i committed any offense but festus wishing to do the jews a favor said to paul do you wish to go up to jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me but paul said i am standing before caesar's tribunal where i ought to be tried 
To the Jews I have done no wrong, and as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to the to their charges against me, no one can give them give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, "Well, to Caesar you have appealed; to Caesar you shall go." Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man uh, left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accuser face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in, the, in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul said had, he was alive. Being at a loss as how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. Uh, that's what happens uh, sometimes when you actually preach the real gospel. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. They still can't figure out what to do with him. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Now watch this. <laughs> Paul, he's, he's given an opportunity to speak to King Agrippa, and you know what he's going to do? He's going to go for it. He's going to preach the gospel. This is amazing stuff. So then Paul stretched out his hand, and he made his descent, defense. He said, I consider myself fortunate that that is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship day and night. For this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. 
why is it that why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme in the raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection... I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard the voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand up to your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Nothing about empire in here. Notice that? That they might receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. By the way, those are red letters. Just want to point that out to the liberals. Therefore, O King Agrippa... I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. What is Paul doing? He's preaching the gospel. He's going for it, man. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. To him, I am speak, I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a quarter. In a corner, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe them. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, in such a short time, would you persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Hmm. Great stuff. Great, great stuff. 
How does the church grow? Through the bold proclamation of Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as the crucified and risen Savior, Jesus as the one who is offering forgiveness of sins, calling men to repentance and trust and faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. What we heard from Paul was completely different than what we heard from Rob Bell. And there's a difference a big difference, and there's a reason for that difference, and that reason needs to be answered. All right, we are up on uh, onto that time of our program where we do our sermon reviews. That means it's time for the sermon review music. Maestro, cue it up, please. That's right. The good, the bad, the ugly, we, we review them all here. Now, it's been a while since we've done a sermon review from this church, SOS Church. They're the ones who did the Easter in the Octagon. Kind of going with that overly machismo theme. By the way, I don't like feminine themes, and I don't like oh, just ridiculously stupid, testosterone-stupid type of preaching either. Huh. I'm not sure if this quite falls into that category, but we'll find out. This is called um, Survivor 300. Makes me uh, makes me wonder if he preached this with his shirt off and and showing off his six pack abs. <sighs> anyway, kill the music, please. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much. All right. So without any further ado, let's dive into the sermon proper. This is from SOS Church, Survivor 300. Uh, Right into what we're doing right now, we have an amazing lesson for you today, and I cannot wait to share some of this with you. Um, What you've seen behind me is a demonstration of courage. What you've seen behind me is a demonstration of someone's ability to look at something coming at them that is much bigger than they are, to stand firm, and to stand their ground and to overcome. You see, as believers, God gives us that opportunity to do that. As believers, we don't have to be weak-kneed. We don't have to be anemic. We don't have to walk around and allow the world to step upon us. But we can have the courage and the strength and the confidence to know that God works in us. Um, At this particular time period, the movie 300, this was a famous battle during Bible times. And what you need to know about the Greeks is that they didn't have obituaries. So when a man died, they didn't write an obituary for that man like we would do today. At the funeral of that man, they would ask one question. And the question was this. Did this man live his life courageously and with passion? That was the question. It was seemingly the same question for everyone that they put into the ground. Did this man live his life with courage and with passion? You see, I would imagine that's the question that they posed at King Leonidas' funeral, the king of and the son of, of Cyrus, the great king, the warrior, the man on the battlefield that wasn't afraid, had the courage to stand down an entire army. I uh, got a question for you there, um, Pastor. Uh, listen, um, King Leonidas, uh, the 300, I, yeah, this all took place during, quote, Bible times, um, but th- th- this isn't a biblical story so the question you know regarding the spartans and and when they were put into the ground after their death did they live passionately and whatever um 
that's not really a biblical admonition or a biblical value, is it? Passion is something that we tend to struggle with. Courage is something that we tend to uh, have trouble exhibiting in our lives, isn't it? It really is. Um, courage is fear, I think. Um, so the problem you're going to solve is the big global problem of not having enough courage and being overcome with fear. Uh, that's what. Um, uh, that's why Jesus was dead on the cross was to show us his courage and show us that he had the ability to overcome fear. Is that what he was doing? I think is fear that has said its prayers. That's courage. You see, you're not going to have the absence of fear to exercise courage. Fear will be there. But courage is the ability to understand that even through the fear, through the situations, through the problems, God is going to give you what you need to defeat the enemy and accomplish the battle. Courageous living is when you free yourself from. Um, what, what, <laughs> whew, um, dude, um, what, what battles are we fighting again here? Um, I'm not a soldier. Well, at least not, um, in the U S army or anything. And I really don't look good with my shirt off. Um, so the survivor 300 thing, I don't think that really, that that can't possibly be for me, right? Fear. Fear of the people and circumstances that surround you. That's courageous living. It's your ability to be courage, courageous around those that are around you at your work, whether it be your home, whether it be your, your relationship at home with your wife or, or husband, whether it be um, extended family on holidays. But courage is the ability to free yourself from the opinions, from the circumstances that surround you. So courage is to free myself from the opinions and circumstances that surround me. Which of the apostles uh, wrote and preached about this? Which of the prophets talked about this again? Which of Jesus' parables dealt with this issue? Just, I mean, offhand, I'm having a hard time recalling. You know, I'm old. You know, I'm getting old, and you know, I'm in I'm in my uh, early 40s. You know, so you know, it, it's brain's already probably starting to not work as good as it did. You know, maybe could you point that out to me in the Bible, please? Maybe your enemy isn't a big rhinoceros charging at you at a hundred miles an hour, but maybe your enemy is something entirely different from that. Maybe courage for some of us is just speaking up for ourselves. Um, isn't the big enemy that uh, Christianity, uh, that Jesus Christ overcame the devil, sin, death, the devil? You've heard of that, like, unholy trinity, referred to uh, sin, death, devil. You've heard of those things? Those are really the enemies that Christianity addresses. I, I'm not so much like, you know, my enemy that I compete with in my job or my coworker or, you know actually having a voice. Maybe courage is being confident in who you are when others are around. Maybe it's becoming more vulnerable for us guys. Maybe courage is the ability to not have to put up the front, the tough guy front all the time, but to show vulnerability among others. 
Maybe it's being willing to show the softer side of ourselves when it comes to opening up and being the men that God has called us to be. Maybe that's courage. My wife, she teases me all the time. And she always wants me to communicate my feelings. Do you guys have wives like that? Always asking you to communicate. Always. And I'm telling you, and I'm a minister, so I'm scripted, baby. Right? But she's smart. She sees right through my script now. And when, and when, when I'm ready for those questions, I can be really good. Really good. I mean, I can just nail it. But when I'm not ready... When she takes me off guard, we're driving down the road and she says, honey, tell me something about me. And there's a long pause and I'm just, and I'm, you got to get that look of meditation on. But when she does these things to me, she turns me into kind of a moto moto type guy uh, on Madagascar, moto moto. And I'm like, baby, you're, you're hot. You're just hot. And she says, honey, I know I'm hot, but tell me something more, baby. Baby, you're fully hot. I know, I know, babe, but just give me a little something else. Baby, God hung the moon on your... You know, I find it ironic, uh, Pastor, that you're preaching about, quote, courage. And um, what I'm finding here is that you are completely a coward when it comes to actually preaching God's word. Otherwise, don't you think you'd be doing that? You know, preaching the offense of the cross and preaching about Christ... And doing your job as a good soldier of the cross, uh, a pastor in the church, and uh, preaching the word. You familiar with uh, that that concept from Paul's uh, Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit tells young Timothy, in view of you know Christ's imminent return, to preach the word in season and out of season. Um. Here you're talking about courage, but by Christian preaching standards, that's actually cowardly preaching. Just pointing it out. Your hotness. This is the way that it works when you're caught off guard. And I've come to realize what I'm doing there is I'm just being scared is what I'm doing. I'm just avoiding opening up. It's my ability to create a laugh or to have some fun with it rather than look my wife deep in the eyes and be specific about what it is and what she does that makes me the man that I am. Don't tell me that doesn't take courage because I want to tell you right now, it's easier for me to play the macho meathead, and that's all of us guys because that's what we're good at, rather than have the courage to show vulnerability. Maybe that's our giant And what I'm trying to say is each and every one of us have our giant. Each and every one of us have our obstacle. I'm assuming that the giant reference is an allegorical interpretation of the Goliath story. Um, But I don't consider that even to be a valid biblical reference at this point. We are 5 minutes 38 seconds into this, what, sermon? Survivor 300. And um, um, the pastor here, it's, it's, I'm a little unclear as to who this is, whether it's Tom or Mike um, preaching. And um, we are, um, uh, God's word's uh, mysteriously missing. Apparently he doesn't have the courage to preach the word.
Each and every one of us have a challenge in front of us, and some of the challenges look different than others. It wouldn't matter to me whether you're struggling with drugs, whether you're struggling with pornography, whether you're struggling with, or or maybe you're just, you have a self-esteem issue, or maybe it's, you have a confidence issue. Or maybe it's you're dealing with, with bankruptcy. Maybe there is something going on in your marriage. There is always an obstacle in life. I uh, Pastor, you're, you are aware that the um, all of that has to do with sin, right? We struggle with a sin issue, a sin nature. And there's consequences that go along with sin, you know, wrath, eternal punishment, things like that, um, that Jesus Christ uh, has taken care of. You're going to talk about that? Because uh, none of us are survivors. We all end up in the grave. And there's only one person who's, quote, survived the grave. And there ain't 300 of them. There's only one. And that would be Jesus Christ. He conquered it. Just saying here. I need you to know that. You will never not have an obstacle in life. There will always be a giant that stands in front of you. And you'll be looking at that giant. And you'll be needing to figure out how to get on the battlefield and to overcome that obstacle. Yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be there. And God's not concerned with how large the obstacle is that's in front of you. He's God. He put the obstacle there. He knows what's going to take place. He knows that there are going to be challenges in life. God is more interested in the measure of your faith and your ability to dig deep inside of yourself and be you. My ability to dig deep inside of myself and be me. Really. Yeah, if I dig deep inside of myself and be me, then I'm... Wow, that's pretty ugly. Because uh, I'm a sinner. So are you. And I, When I dig deep inside of me, <clears throat> what I get is really deep, ugly muck. You got any good news for me, by the way? Any gospel to share with me whatsoever? Familiar with that term at all? Or are you too cowardly to preach that? That's, that's what God's interested in. Matthew 21, verse 21 through 22. Jesus said... By the way, uh, on the clock here, that's six minutes, 52 seconds into the sermon before the first appearance of God's word. And we're getting a verse... Out of context, we continue. I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt in your heart, you can say unto this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and it will be done. Um, you're quoting that out of context, and by doing so, you're making it sound like uh, our faith is the, uh, some kind of a work that we do. And if we, you know, build it up, you know, go down to the faith gym and, you know, kind of bench press our faith and build it up big enough that we can, you know, command mountains to throw themselves into the ocean. (sighs) Hang on a second here. I got to back this up. I got to get the reference so that we, yeah, I can critique it properly. Hang on a second. Two, Jesus said, oh man, I missed it. Hate when I back up the tape and I don't quite get it. That's what God's interested in. Matthew 21, verse 21 through 22. Okay, hang on. Matthew 21, 21 through 22. By the way, the uh, three primary rules of biblical interpretation. Uh, In fact, if you follow these rules, 90 to 95% of all false teaching will just literally just melt away. 
Matthew. Hang on a second here. Matthew 21. All right. So, by the way, those three rules. <laughs> mention the three rules and don't say them. Oh, man. Getting old. Um, They are. Ready for this? Context. Context. And uh, context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. All right, here we go. Let's see here. I'm going to back it up. I'm going to go to verse 12. Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all those who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, I I have. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. And then leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. And in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered that, Well, truly, I say to you, If you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but if even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown in the sea, it will be it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders and the uh, people came to him. And as he was teaching, he said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you the authority to do this? And Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John the Baptist, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? They discussed it among themselves, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they will uh, they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered, well, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now... I read all of this together. Now we come back to the, you get the big context of what's going on here. Okay. Jesus talking about faith. Okay. What is faith? What is biblical faith? Faith is basically childlike, childlike trust in God and the promises that he has made. Without faith, Hebrews eleven six says, it's impossible to please God. But you can't muster faith up within yourself. It's not that's it is not something that is generated from within you. Ephesians chapter two verses eight and nine make it clear that faith is a gift from God. Okay, and so when you have faith. It's not you doing these things because faith always has an object. Remember Faith has an object, and that object is Jesus Christ. Faith is like eyeballs. What you focus your eyeballs on is the thing that you see, the thing that you trust. You focus your faith on Christ. You you have faith and trust in Christ. Um, it's God who does things, and he does them through his power. And you can ask him in faith, knowing that you have a good and gracious God. So Jesus is saying that you know to the disciples that they will do 
they can do great things. And if you trust in God and you say to this mountain, you know, throw yourself into the sea, it will happen. It's not because of how great your faith is. It's how because of how great your God is. And keep in mind, faith is a gift from God. We continue. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt in your heart, you can say unto this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and it will be done. What's the key parts of that verse? Have faith in God. Have faith in God. He didn't say have religion. He said have faith. Now, that's a valid point. Jesus didn't say have religion. Religion is works-based. But listen carefully. See if this guy's turning faith into a work. Listen carefully. Be courageous. Have faith. Live your life with passion. I'll tell you right now, Jesus in Luke chapter 18. Whoa, 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 whoa. Nothing about living your life with passion was in that text. Why did you throw that in there? You just inserted that in there. We don't allow that here at Fighting for the Faith. That's a foul. You know, that, uh, I'm sorry, a 20-yard penalty. Team. And this isn't in my notes. This just came to me, but it's a kind of a revelation. Jesus in Luke chapter 18. Did you hear that? This isn't in my notes. This isn't in the passage, but it kind of came to me. You know what he did? Jesus gave us non-perfect people a back door to worshiping him and being confident in who we are. Because in Luke chapter 18, he says to all the religious people, you are religious bigots. Here's what he's saying to them. He's telling them that he doesn't agree with their manual book. He doesn't agree with their rules and regulations. And he totally gets on to them. You know what I think? I think that our Christian evangelical system has removed faith. Now, he's right in a certain sense, but listen carefully to what he's saying here. Hold on. From the picture. And we've turned church into a rule book. We have turned church into a manual. And that's not what church is intended to be. I grew up in a system, man, where the minute I stepped out of line, a siren sounded off all across the prayer chain in the church. And that is no joke. The minute that I broke the rules, it was all over the place. And there was an APB because someone had stepped out of line. You know, I grew up in a system where, you know, instead of, we, we were so religious, we created our own cuss words. It was like, shoot and darn and dang it. Yeah, that's the system I grew up in. This is how warped my mind is. This- so, um, refraining from cussing. That's warped? Hmm. This is how messed up I am from this religious thing. And you know what it does to you? It takes away your passion. Man, it takes away your ability to live life. So the religious thing takes away your passion? Uh, You know, false religion ends you up in uh, hell. It takes away more than just your passion. You know, just pointing it out. And know that Jesus came so that we could courageously and passionately live. Uh, so Jesus came so that we can courageously and passionately live. Uh, do you have a Bible verse on that? One would do. For him. I think that the religious system has turned us all into a bunch of Ned Flanders. I do. 
I do, man. I think that we are all a bunch of nerdy geeks sometimes when it comes to church and religion instead of truly stepping up and living our life the way that God has intended it to be. God didn't intend us to wear a suit to church all the time. You got a verse on that? You're speaking for God there, dude. Um, oh, man. God didn't intend us to be a cookie-cutter people that we all have to look the same way and act the same way and be the same way. The universe, the universality of Jesus, I don't even know if that's a word, but it's, I just said it. He is, he, is, he is so universal. He is so universal that you can apply him to any situation. Uh, so Jesus is a universal uh, topical ointment that you can apply to any situation. You don't think you might have a bad Christology there, Pastor, do you? No matter what journey that you're on, no matter what situation that you're in, Jesus gives us the courage. Jesus gives us the passion to live our lives in an amazing way. I don't want to be status quo. I don't want to be status quo. And you know what keeps you status quo? Fear. That. Oh, uh, could you point out uh, where any of the apostles uh, talked about the uh, the big problem of status quo and you know the fear thing that was causing it? You know, something in the Bible would help here. Keeps you positioned in your status quo mentality. Well, Tom, what is status quo? Well. How long have you been doing the same thing you've been doing with the same results? How long? Because if you can answer that question, even a year, you're living life in status quo. God did not intend our life to be so repetitious that there is no adventure, there's no excitement, there's no faith. If it doesn't take... Um, yeah, uh, oh boy. Um, boy, this... <laughs> oh, no, we're... It, you you might be living in status quo. That's this is a terrible blight on humanity. I just oh can oh I, what a terrible thing to have happen to somebody. Could you imagine living in status quo? I am so glad that Jesus Christ came to solve this status quo problem and to set us free from slavery to this status quo. Take courage for you to put your feet on the ground and go do your job, then get a different job. Yeah. If it doesn't take courage for you to step out into your community each and every day and be the person that God has inspired you to be, then what are you living for? What are you talking about? I, I, I don't see this in the Bible anywhere. Dude, you might want to get back to the book. You're making a fool of yourself. Maybe it's because you're you're too fearful to, you know, preach the word and do your job. You see, it takes courage. It takes strength. It takes a resiliency to do and to be the people that God has called us to be. I had some great experiences this week. And even as we started SOS Church, I have loved, absolutely loved to see the changes that God is making in our movement, in what we are doing. I always... Uh, your church has its own movement? 
that's a little odd, don't you think? I always tell you, Christ is the head shepherd of this church, not Tommy Skiles. I'm not the head shepherd. Jesus is the head shepherd. He's the lead pastor of this church, and we build teams in in order to mobilize this church. And God is changing people. And there are people who have inspired me. I was at a, a wedding this weekend, EJ and Abby. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. And little Abby, as shy as could be, she was just shaking like a leaf to come up that aisle in front of 150 to 200 people. She was so worried and so nervous, and she was shaking, but she took the walk. They came up, and I could see it all over her, but she had the courage to step in and to make a commitment and a covenant with passion. It was an amazing time. It was an amazing time, and she conquered that fear. I think about last year's survivor camp when two very close people, and they won't mind me talking about this, Lona and Sharon, in that baptism time, and how they come out of that water with a testimony, and how that they committed to change their life in Jesus Christ forever. I think about that. Uh, Do you hear the law here, a little bit of legalism going on? Anything about the gospel and what Christ has done for me? I'm not hearing any gospel. I'm definitely hearing a light version of the law. That takes courage. That takes someone who is willing to make a stand. Someone who is willing to rise up. I think about Ann Little. In her mid-80s, I can't imagine what it looks like her driving on those city streets right now. (laughs) But she... (laughs) but she, But she comes to church faithfully every Sunday. What kind of courage does it take? I got news for you. When I am that young in my twilight years and that close in terms of being graduated and promoted unto what God is going to do for me next, I want to have the courage to jump in my car. I want to have the courage to move like this lady moves. What an inspiration. What a courage that she possesses. I think about guys like Jason Hudson. Some of you may not know him. Some of you may know him. But when Jason... Is Jason mentioned in the Bible? At least Jason Hudson. Is is he a biblical character? Dude, you have no courage whatsoever to preach the Bible, which is your job. Interesting. You're talking about courage, and I think you're just fearful. Jason first started with us. He was a he. He was a quiet guy. He was, uh, and he won't mind me talking about this. He was a little more introverted, but since he has been allowing God to push him out of his box, he one of his fears was public speaking. He did that last year here, during our strike month. He did an absolute amazing job. It took courage. It took everything he had in him to stand behind this pulpit and to say something to you guys about what God was saying to him. Don't tell me God can't do it in you. Because he can. Because he can. Now he's in Kidmo, Jason Hudson. And he's got these goofy hat and socks and suspenders. And he looks like an absolute sideshow at Silver Dollar City. But I'll tell you what. There's courage there. There's a commitment to change and to be the very best that he can possibly be. My heart went out to a young man who, who and, and I don't single people out, but a young man who lost his dad not too long ago. And I'm not going to say names. Some of you will know the courage that it takes for he and his mom. Did you single out like that lady in that? Never mind.
convoluted. This sermon's really convoluted. Could you get back to, you know, being brave enough to actually do your job, sir? You know, preach the word in season, out of season. You know, the two verses that you've uh, mentioned out of context, we didn't learn nothing. Nothing about what God's word really teaches. Um, to walk through that was touching to me. My heart just exploded for them in their time and the courage for them to stand up and to walk through and to believe and to never give up in that. You see, there are people all around you that are inspirational. There are people all around you that if you look hard enough, you see courage. Maybe they're not standing down a big giant like this, but the giants that they face, they're facing them with courage and with believing that they can do it. Today, I want to share with you quickly a little talk about David and his battle against a giant. Ah, here we go. An allegorical interpretation of the David and Goliath story. Why does this not surprise me? Can't wait to hear his spin on it. Goliath. This was a battle that David was doomed to fail by natural laws. This was a battle. Where's Evan? Evan, are you here? Could you come up here for a second? Don't think I'm intimidated by you. I want you to stand up about right here on this stage. That gives you about what? Another two foot, Evan? Okay. So that, that would put you at about nine foot right there. Okay. The story of David and Goliath. Goliath was a man who was about 10 foot. The Bible says measurement wise, he was a 10 foot giant. And the Bible says that he was standing down the army of Israel. There was one hill, Goliath was there, there was another hill, and the army of Israel was here, and there was a valley that was in between. And this massive giant, this massive beast of a man, <laughs> I'm just doing this for Eddie, um, he, he comes out and he challenges the army of Israel, all of the soldiers. The Bible says that his spear weighed just the tip of his spear, 15 pounds. Could you imagine that? Just the tip. The Bible says his shield was so big he had to have someone carry it out before him. And he stood on the front line, just Goliath, and he challenged the army of Israel to send a man. Send me a man, Goliath says. Send me any man so that you can come and defeat me. And if you defeat me, we'll... Hey, Tommy, have you ever thought about, you know, just you know, reading the text itself and, you know, letting God's word speak for itself. You know, it's a good idea. Um, we'll give this battle unto you. We will become your slaves. And for 40 days in first Samuel chapter 17, the Bible says this man came out and challenged people. I just wanted you to see how tall this guy might've been. Go ahead. Thanks dude. Yeah, you want to do that? I'd love to do that. Okay. Evan has called Mike out for a challenge. You guys know the rules of our church. Once a challenge is made, it cannot, it has to be accepted. That will happen in the outer parking lot shortly after our worship experience. <laughs> um, this, this, this man, for 40 days, stands out in the valley and says, send me a man. Send me your best soldier. And for 40 days... The Israelite army stay in their tents for fear because they were terrified, because they were scared of this giant that was challenging them. Let me tell you something. You always need to be ready to face your giant. 
that would be an allegorical interpretation out of bounds. Sorry, uh, go back. Yeah, definitely a foul here on the play. And I will tell you this, if you're not facing your giant, then what are you doing? If you don't have a challenge in front of you, what are you doing? Get a challenge. If you're not engaged in... So you would like me to go and pick a fight with somebody bigger than me? Is that what you're saying? <sighs> ...in something that is pushing you where, you, where it's involving your sacrifice. Life isn't... It's not meant for us to do everything we want to do all the time when we want to do it. I, I hate to tell you guys that, but it's not meant to be that luxurious. And if it is that luxurious, then honestly, you're going to get tired of that. There come a time in your life where you're going to want a challenge. And I'm not talking to the guys that are retired right now. You've earned that. I'm talking to anyone who needs to... Uh, question. Tommy, did you actually go to seminary to learn how to interpret God's word this way? You know, if you did, you might want to see if you can get your money back. Just saying. To understand that whatever it is that you're fighting, you need to fight it well. Because God has designed it that way. He's designed us to have giants in, my in our life, and we always need to be ready to face that giant. Number two, your giant will constantly harass you. For 40 days, this giant harassed him. Oh, boy. Allegorical interpretation again. Here we go. If you have a giant, which you need to go out and find one if you don't, because, I mean, what's the point in living if you don't have a challenge, you know, a giant? Um, so go pick a fight with somebody who's really larger than you, muscular, whatever, you know, because you need a giant. And you'll know it's a true giant if it harasses you all the time. For 40 days. And for 40 days, their answer was the same. Fear. Trembling. Scared not willing to step up on the front line and to tackle what was right before them. Your giant's going to harass you. And I promise you this, that giant is not going to go away. If you think that you can cope with an addiction, you're wrong. Many of us slip... Wait a second! You were just chiding us that we need to go out and find a giant, you know, like a challenge in our life, and then you turn around and say that, you know... That I might have a harassing addiction. I, I don't want to have to go and get addicted to something in order to have a challenge in my life. I don't need that kind of giant. In and out of seasons of addiction, but if you think that you can cope with addiction, that is a giant. It's harassing you, and if you don't do something about it, it will come against you. If you think that you can cope with having a selfish attitude, you're wrong. That's your giant. Because a selfish attitude will keep you confined and keep you living. All right, I I'm confused. Do I want a challenging giant or not? Because you're describing these things as bad things, and you were just chatting me about, oh, man, I I am, I'm, I'm lost. Definitely lost. A life without love, without giving, without sacrifice. If you think that you can get by with that, you're wrong. That's a giant, and that giant's harassing you, and that giant's defeating you. Some of you have confidence problems. Some of you allow crowded rooms. Some of you allow your family, people that are closest to you, to intimidate you and to dictate how you feel on the inside. That's a giant. Did you know that? That's a giant. I happen to believe that when you're a child of God, you don't have to take backseat to anyone. You do you better than anybody. 
And you have to have the courage to step up and to stand up for what you believe in, for your individual belief system and how God is pouring into your heart. Because that's something that will bring you confidence in your life. Your giant will harass you. And I want you to know something. In the Bible, in, in, in 1 Samuel 17, 24 through 25, this battle between David and Goliath lets us know that fear and worry never makes a situation better. Never. Some of you are gripped by fear in your mind and you're gripped by worry and it's got its claws wrapped around you and you're worried about the future and you're worried about what's going to happen in the future and you're worried about how maybe your husband or your wife or your relationships are going to turn out and you're fearful of all of those. You are kidding me, right? These are the big problems, the big things that Jesus came to slay. You don't know how to read the Bible, dude. Those things, but you cannot live your life in fear. That is a giant, and a giant is an opportunity to take a step in the right direction. Okay, so is a, I'm still confused. Is a giant a good thing or a bad thing to have? You told me to, well, you, I should go out and get one, but then you say they could be an addiction or something like that. And then you say it, it, it could be an opportunity. So, okay, I'm confused. So if I go and I go and I get addicted to something because I need a giant in my life, and it harasses me, and I can't let myself free from it because, you know, that you can't set yourself free from that kind of giant. Um, should I then consider that newly found addiction that I've gotten because I needed a giant in my life, I, I need to see that as an opportunity? I Notice the, the interpretation, your interpretation of this passage is, is completely breaking down. You ever stop to think that maybe allegorical interpretations are not the way the Bible is supposed to be read? Just thinking out loud here. You have one of two ways you can go. You can defeat the giant and you can become a better person. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to get uncomfortable. But you will defeat him with the ability and the help of God. You will defeat him. And you'll grow and you'll become stronger than you ever have before. The armies of Israel, they've hidden out in fear for 40 days. Feeling defeated. Could you imagine the men in those tents? I would imagine that they were, had, had some of the same conversations that we have with ourselves as we go home to our tents today. As we go home to our dwelling place. As we go home into our homes. Oh, this allegorical interpretation of the Bible is just rife with problems. Blah. The questions that come up, am I being what I need to be doing? Am I, am I, am I living up to my potential? Am I, am I living life passionately, courageously? Yeah. They're giants. And if you defeat them, you win. You win. Uh, do I go to heaven if I defeat my giant? So if I if I what if I what if my giant defeats me do I go to hell? I want you to repeat after me every single person in here. Oh, I can't wait to hear this. And do it like you mean it. My avail my availability gives God opportunity to bring courage to me. Did you just make that up? Seriously, did you write that yourself? That's pathetic. My availability gives God opportunity to bring courage to me. If you oh, man. When are you going to have the courage to preach the gospel and to actually teach the word the way it's supposed to be taught? Unbelievable.
if you don't make yourself available, if you don't see the giant, if you don't see the giant as an opportunity, there'll never be courage. But when you see that giant as an opportunity to grow, as an opportunity to get beyond your own borders and to experience God, things will happen in your life like you never thought possible. And where exactly does is this doctrine taught in the Bible? Because I think you're just making this up. Fear grips the hearts of many people. But God said in Matthew 6, 31, 34, through his son, Jesus Christ, so do not worry, saying, what will we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Then he says, but seek his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given unto you as well. Verse 34, therefore... Do you even know what that means to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Not your own, the righteousness of God. Do you even know what that means? Early in the program, we talked about the righteousness of Christ given to us as a gift. When we seek God's righteousness, we're seeking that we're seeking Christ's righteousness. We're seeking the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. Oh boy. Or do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't worry. Don't worry. Live life in the present. They call it a present because it's a present. It's a gift. Now is given unto you to not worry about what the bills are going to be next week, to not worry about, but to live your life courageously and passionately in today, in the now. Courage isn't your own ability, but it's God's ability. You see, you have gifts, you have talents. Every single one of us have something we can give, but I'll tell you right now, your own ability will not get you there. You will need to do as David did. This young warrior comes on the scene, sees this giant, sees this opportunity. Here comes more allegory, and he's not reading the passage, notice. And he has the courage to defeat the giant, but not because he's so big and strong. The Bible says he was a ruddy little shepherd boy, anemic, a little skinny, scrawny guy. He wasn't a warrior, but he seen the opportunity. He just happened to be taking lunch to his brothers who were on the battlefield, and David sees this giant, and David hears about the rewards for beating this giant, and David says, I can do this. So he goes to the king, and he says, um, If you would read the text, David wasn't motivated by the rewards. He was incensed that this uncircumcised Philistine was defying the armies of the living God. See, this is, it's always a problem when somebody doesn't read the text. Why is it a problem? Because they start slipping in their own stuff. (sighs) Let's see here. Um, It's 1 Samuel 17. All right, let's see here. Um, Yeah, let me remember, context is important. 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 19. Now Saul and uh, and they all, the men of Israel, were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. He came to the encampment 
as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. David left the things in charge of uh, left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him, and they were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. This is not about an opportunity. This is about the Philistine defying the armies of the living God. That's what he's... It's not like David's sitting there going, hey, you know, there's an opportunity here. I could... uh, Wow, I've always wanted to marry the king's daughter and... Says, I can defeat this enemy of the Lord. And the king says, un, says unto David, you're small and you have no armor. He's, a, he's an experienced warrior in battle. How are you going to do this? And David says, by the power that God has given me, I will bring this giant down. Yeah. Uh, hang on. Power that God has given me. I'm, I'm, one, I'm, I'm feeling a scripture twist here. All right, let's see. All right, so David spoke to Saul, and David said to Saul, let no, man, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go down and fight this Philistine. Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, struck him, and delivered it out of his mouth. If he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Um, it's not what God gave David, it's that God delivered David. He had faith. Funny that uh, Tommy here would uh, complain about the church not having any faith, and he's completely missing the faith portion of the text that he's not reading, but telling us about. You see, it's not my ability, it's not your ability, it's the ability that God gives us to have courage, to have passion, to have faith. Yeah, but that wasn't in the text. See, you know, again, you didn't read it. If you had just read it, you know, because that's your job um, to read it and preach it, uh, you wouldn't be missing messing this up like you are now. To tackle the giants that are before us. Never allow someone else to tell you you're not qualified. Never allow someone else to tell you that you can't do it. Uh, but you actually might not be qualified. By the way, um, if I were to just step into a 
you know, an operating room and say, hey, step over, move, move aside there, you surgeons. Um, I'm going to perform surgery. I'm going to do the open heart today. They would look at me and go, who are you? Uh, I'm Chris. I'm, I, I'm, I'm here because I have courage enough to know that God has given me the, uh, I'm living my life, you know, passionately right now. And I, I've always thought that surgery looked really fun and cool. So I'm here. So step aside, I'm going to take over, but you're not qualified to uh, perform surgery and open heart surgery. You've never been to school. Ah, who cares? God has given me passion. I, I can do this. This is the giant I'm supposed to slay in my life. Move aside. And, my, and Tommy Skiles told me, never let anyone tell me I'm not qualified. So you need to take it up with Pastor Skiles. Never allow the people that are around you to keep you in a box. If- uh, by the way, um, if I did that and went into an OR and tried to do that, they would actually put me in a box with um, bars. That's called jail. If you need to shout it from the rooftops, never for the sake of peace and quiet and harmony, deny your own convictions. But shout it out. Scream it out. Let people know that you have the courage to live your life with passion. That's what, that's the way God, who cares? God intended it to be. Uh, no, no. Where does it say that again? Could you give me a clear passage to that effect? That's the way God wanted it to be. You know, I hear you talking for God, but I don't hear you actually correctly telling me what his word says. That's the way it's supposed to be. God's intended us to win. So my final challenge is confront your giant. Confront him. Don't be afraid. Engage in what's right in front of you. Some of you are being held back. And it's fear that's holding you back. Some of you have esteem issues. Some of you have confidence problems. And it's fear that is keeping you where you are. And you're feeling like society has got you in your place. But in Jesus Christ, there is a liberty to free yourself from that world. To live your life spiritually. To allow God to come in and give you the strength that you need. The most difficult step in facing our fear is the first step. That's the most difficult step. It's the very first step. But it is that first step that turns you from a coward to a champion. It's that first step that turns you from a zero to a hero. What I love about what we do as people is that if we make one decision, one decision that means something, that supports justice and truth and honesty and the right stuff, one decision can take it all away. The past, that's the way God designed it. One decision. The past, everything that's got you bound, one decision can take you from feeling like a zero into feeling like a hero. How do I know this? Because I made that decision. And because I lived a past whoa, 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 whoa. that was right. You know this because you made the decision. Uh, wait a second, Pastor. You're supposed to know stuff because it's taught in God's Word. You know this because you made a decision? I don't think so. With many mistakes, stupid decisions, bad situations, and to the point that life had me so beat down, I was accepting of who I was. Maybe you didn't know this, but I was such a drug addict that I couldn't articulate a full sentence. I struggled that much. And while everybody was telling me, you'll never speak, 
will never do what you want to do, your dreams and your hopes. God was telling me something different. He was telling me something different. We can render the rest of the world and everyone around us powerless with one decision. One decision. Let's watch this clip. Hang on a second here. I'm going to have to fast forward through whatever this clip thing is. Hold on. Listen up! Oh, maybe we'll play it. Ben Wade they have up there. Ben Wade! Ben, wait, what? This sounds like a movie clip. What movie is this from? Now, the railroad intends. Is this a clip from 310 to Yuma? Put him on the 310 to Yuma and hang him. What's he doing? Whoa, man. Unbelievable. We're. Oh, uh, yeah, because, you know, the movie 310 to Yuma, that's just, just chock full of good biblical goodness right there. We will give you 200 cash dollars to any man who shoots any one of his captains. 200 cash dollars. Guaranteed. $200 guaranteed. I'll tell you now, mister. I'll take your hundred. Give me the money. Well, you gotta shoot him first. Oh, man. There'll be 30, 40 more guns out there now. Just a minute, Marshall. Can't wait to hear what the life application from 310 to Yuma here. That's man's duty, but there's only five of us. By the way, a uh, bunch of people split, sorry, and the main character dies. I'm sorry, if you haven't seen the movie. And neither are my men. They say discretion is the better part of valor. If you think you have an obligation to me or to the railroad... I assure you, you do not. I'm releasing you. It's just you left, Dan. By the way, the name of this particular sermon is Survivor 300. I didn't know it was Survivor 310 to Yuma. Am I ruining the movie for you? Should I stop talking? Shh, wait, we're trying to watch the movie. What did Doc Potter give his life for, William? Malcolm Roy. Little red ants on a hill. I'll pay the 200, Dan, right now, and you can walk away. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, this whole ride has been nagging on me. Yeah, man. It's been nagging on me, too. That's what the government gave me for my leg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. $198.36. And the funny thing is that when you think about it, which I have been lately. Yeah, this, this story here is just so biblical, man. Walk away. Yeah, yeah. They were paying me so they could walk away. Don't muddy the past and the present, Dan. No, 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 wait. I'm seeing the world the way it is. 
If you take him to the train, I'm going with you. No. William, I want you to give this back to your mother. I want you to tell her that it helped me find what was right. You know, pass the popcorn over here. Yeah, thanks. You can do that because you've become a fine man, William. Oh, man, there's not enough butter and salt on this thing. <laughs> we'll see there are. And you just remember that your old man walked them way to that station. Right on, right on, right on. Nobody yeah. else would. Uh-huh. Uh, feeling my testosterone levels rising. I'm gonna go conquer the world. I pray that each and every one of us have the ability to exhibit that kind of courage. Uh, Tommy, um, that was a movie. I just wanted to let you know, Ben Wade, that, that guy didn't really exist, dude. Uh, 310 to Yuma. Fiction. Um, and uh, where in the Bible are we called to have that kind of courage? Just, you know, wondering here out loud. Um, Maybe it's not life and death. But courage can be applied each and every day of our life. The ability to look whatever giant that we're facing in the eye. To see it clearly and to fight the good fight that God has given us. Uh, so fighting the good fight means having courage. I just don't think that's what was meant by that passage. You know, you might want to look it up. You see, this young David, this young man, came against this giant when no one else would. He exhibited courage. He gave the battle to God. And the uh, Bible says he... T- you know, well, actually, he didn't give the battle to God. Um, he just trusted that God would deliver him. You know, like he did from the lion and the bear, you know, stuff like that. Took one stone and a slingshot, went charging at this massive giant and released that stone into that giant's forehead. And I believe supernaturally that stone sunk deep into the forehead of that giant and dropped him. And then this young soldier steps over the giant, takes his head off. Oh, this is so inspirational. And claims that the battle is God's. You have to take the head off of your giant. You can't just play around with the enemy. But by the authority of Jesus Christ, you have to have the courage to step up and defeat it. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I don't know what your giant is. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what you're wrestling with. But I want to pray for each and every one of you right now. Each person in here that might be dealing with something. Maybe it's just a void emptiness in your heart. Maybe it's just mundane living in If you have your Zippo lighter, please light it now and wave it in the air. There's mine. There. Yep. Yeah, hang on. There. 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 Here. We are the champions. We are the champions. 
All right, here's my favorite part. Of the world. Yeah, come on, sing along, sing along. I've taken my bows and my curtain calls. Oh, yeah, it's just can't you, don't you feel so inspired here? Oh, man, Zippo went out. Come on, you can do it. I'm trying to show my courage here. I need a lighter to do it. Come on. Ah, there we go. I think the flint's going out on that. Waving in the air here. Uh, all right, enough of that. Oh, man. What has happened to Christian preaching? Uh, Tommy, um, if you haven't been to seminary, you need to go. If you have been to seminary, you need to get a reimbursement for the entire amount because they didn't teach you nothing about how to handle God's word. Nothing, no how, no way. Unbelievable. It's not that David had such great courage. David had great faith in his great God and Savior. His great God and Savior delivered him from the mouth of the lion, delivered him from the mouth of the bear. He knew that he would deliver him from the mouth of the Philistine, and ultimately he knew that his great God and Savior would deliver him from the jaws of death itself. Because David was looking forward in faith to the one who would ascend to his throne forever, Jesus Christ. The one conqueror of our greatest enemies, sin, death, and the devil. The one who had the courage and more than that, the ability to stand up to Satan and crush his head with his heel. That sermon that you preached was so man-centered, so me-centered, and so off-topic biblically, the allegorical interpretation was just caught cockamamie bizarre didn't tell me nothing about Jesus Christ unbelievable oh man I just, oh. All right, sadly, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's Friday. Hope that you all have a great weekend. If you'd like, I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that we depend on you. Your financial support is vital for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you, but not only to you, but to other people. So would you consider sharing the, uh, the gifts that God has given you financially with us so that we can continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. Or you can uh, do it the traditional way and send your gift to Fighting for the Faith, Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Oh, wow. If you'd like to email me, you can. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. 
Until next me- week, <clears throat> may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy and forgiveness won by Jesus Christ, vicarious and victorious death on the cross for your sins and mine. Amen. Amen.